Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Ideas in association with Greenpeace Australia Pacific present Global Warming and the Mass Bleaching of Corals with speakers Terry Hughes, David Ritter, Maria Byrne and Ian McCalman. Good evening and welcome to this uh, Sydney Ideas event uh, co-sponsored by the University of Sydney, um, Sydney's Environment Institute and Greenpeace Australia. Um, I'm Professor Anna-Marie Jagos, the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. <laughs> and I usually say, you know, how pleased I am to um, front an event, although this is such a sort of a sobering event as its title indicates global warming and recurrent mass bleaching of corals that it would seem a bit trite to be incredibly pleased to be here this evening. Um, before we uh, begin our proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Their ancestral lands stretch from South Head at the entrance to Sydney Harbour to Petersham, about four kilometres from our Camperdown campus up Parramatta Road. It's upon the Gadigal people's ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we think about the global challenges of climate change here tonight, we also recognise more than 60,000 years of Indigenous knowledge about cultural endurance and even persistence embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. I'd also like to thank uh, Karina Holden and Northern Pictures for their short film State of the Reef. This is a little outtake um, of their uh, theatrical release full-length film uh, called Blue. It's a film about ocean conservation, as you've seen, and it will be released in cinemas around Australia. The taglines for this film are suitably bracing. Half of all marine life has been lost in the last 40 years. By 2050, there will be more plastic in the sea than fish. Perhaps more positively for those of us who are seeking sources of optimism in the face of environmental degradation, the advanced promotional materials go on to claim Blue shows us there is a way forward and the time to act is now. So I just want to um, give a very brief description of how the evening's proceedings will unfold. Um, Friday night is, I think, traditionally and conventionally a tough gig, um, <laughs> and yet I think the number of people sitting here this evening um, really indicate, I think, both the pulling power of our speaker and panellists, um, and also obviously the contemporary relevance of the issue at hand. Um, uh, Terry Hughes, um, I'm going to introduce Terry to you, he's our keynote tonight, he's going to speak for 20 minutes and then panellists are going to respond. Um, Terry Hughes is Professor and Director of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies. He has broad research interests in ecology, marine biology and the social ecological dynamics of coral reefs. He was elected a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Science in 2001 in recognition of, and I'm quoting this um, bit now, a career which has significantly advanced the world's store of scientific knowledge. In 2007, he was awarded the Sherman Eureka Prize for Environmental Research, and in 2008, he received the prestigious Quadrennial Darwin Medal of the International Society for Reef Studies. Terry has been awarded three Federation Laureate Fellowships by the Australian Research Council from 2002 to 2017. In 2014, he was awarded an Einstein Professorship by the Chinese Academy of Science. And in December last year, he was recognised by Nature magazine 
as one of the 10 people who mattered this year. I'm pretty sure you're going to go on and matter in subsequent years, Terry. That's what we must sounded sort of like a eulogy, didn't it? Um, Terry has been worked very hard by the Sydney Environment Institute. I understand this is his third presentation today, um, so we really much, very much appreciate your participation, Terry. Um, after Terry's um, address, we're going to hear responses from what I'm now thinking of as sort of fellow reefologists. Um, Maria Boone, um, sitting on Terry's right there, is the Professor of Marine Biology um, at the University of Sydney. She's an expert in the biology and ecology of marine invertebrates, with a current focus on the impacts of climate change on coral reef species. In recent research, she and her colleagues and students have investigated ecologically important species such as the crown of thorns starfish, the sea cucumbers that comprise the tropical beche de mer fishery, foraminifera as key calcifying species, and the change in coral reef habitat following bleaching. Um, next in sitting order is Ian McKelman, uh, currently a research professor of history also at the University of Sydney and co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute, which is co-sponsoring this event tonight. Over his long academic career, Ian has established a national and international reputation as a historian of science, culture and the environment, whose work has influenced university scholars and students, but also government policymakers and broad general publics around the world. He is the author most recently of The Reef, A Passionate History, The Great Barrier Reef from Captain Cook to Climate Change. And finally, David Ritter, the Chief Executive Officer of Greenpeace Australia Pacific, the other co-sponsor of the event tonight. He has been with Greenpeace for nine years, campaigning to secure an earth capable of nurturing life in all its amazing diversity. He's an affiliate of both the Sydney Environment Institute and the Sydney Democracy Network, both of the University of Sydney. Terry. Hello everyone. Um, you probably think I'm overdressed. I, I wasn't sure what the dress code for tonight was, whether I could get away with wearing a sweater or I needed a jacket. But because I'm from the tropics, I'm wearing both. <laughs> so um, thank you all for coming out on this um, crisp wintry evening. Um, and thank you for coming to hear about uh, the Great Barrier Reef. So uh, for the last year, actually 51 weeks, uh, I have been studying uh, bleaching, which is a, a response by corals to thermal stress along the length and breadth of the Great Barrier Reef. And tragically, we now have back-to-back -back bleaching, both last year uh, at exactly this time of year and again now. So I'm going to start out by showing you uh, a little movie clip in a moment. But be before I do that, I want to make a couple of points. Um, here in Australia, we tend to think uh, about the Great Barrier Reef as our reef, uh, but reefs, of course, occur throughout the tropics, and they are incredibly important to uh, several hundred million people, not just for their aesthetic value and biodiversity, which is what turns a lot of Australians on, but also because of the food security that they provide to people and the livelihoods through fisheries and through a global reef tourism industry. So looking after reefs is not just a conservation imperative, it's, it's about people's livelihoods, people's incomes, and they're socially and indeed spiritually very important 
to literally hundreds of, of millions of people. Unfortunately, many reefs around the world are increasingly degraded, and that degradation didn't just happen very recently with global warming. Degradation of reefs has been ongoing now for well over a century. So the three main drivers of that degradation are pollution, runoff from land, overfishing or overharvesting, and increasingly climate change. So the problems of the world's coral reefs are not unidimensional. Uh, it's not just climate change, which we tend to hear a lot of in the media most recently. So if we look at an historic photograph from the Great Barrier Reef, which is shown on top there, a picture was taken in 1883. I hasten to add that I did not personally take that picture. <laughs> um, you'll see that mountain range in the back. This is a picture taken very close to Bowen, where the Abbot Point Coal Terminal is now. Um, and there's the same mountain range. So that was a very healthy fringing reef with a very diverse assemblage of coral species. When I first saw that picture, I pretty much fell off my chair because those of you who are study coral reefs will recognize that as a very diverse assemblage of species dominated by a genus called Acropora, which is the most common mid-shelf and outer-shelf coral genus today. You don't see coastal reefs that look like that anymore. And the picture at the bottom, which is uh, the very same reef, is now a mudflat. And so that sort of uh, shift, it's sometimes called a regime shift, um, from a coral-dominated healthy ecosystem to some alternative assemblage dominated, in this case, by mud and seaweed, has taken place now on about a third of the world's uh, coral reefs. And the drivers of that degradation are historical drivers. They're still ongoing. They haven't gone away. In fact, they're escalating. But the point I want to make is that many reefs around the world are already badly damaged before this new third driver, climate change, is beginning to kick in and accelerate. So the second driver is harvesting. So there's an old photograph, again, I didn't take it, um, from Port Douglas, which shows a Queensland grouper uh, about the size of a small house. And so there's a long list of species ranging from dugong to reef fishes that have been, uh, the stock size of those species has been reduced. If you go today to the barrier reef, to a reef where fishing is not allowed, or where entry is not allowed, the so-called pink and green zones, you'll find between two and five times more fish inside those protected areas compared to the rest of the Great Barrier Reef where fishing is, is allowed. So there have been many changes to reefs, and the changes to the Great Barrier Reef from fishing are relatively minor compared to uh, many other more heavily fished reefs, uh, particularly in developing countries. And increasingly now, we've also got to deal with the issue of climate change. So this is a very short uh, movie clip taken underwater, obviously. This is a reef near Port Douglas. It's called Chinaman Reef. And that video was taken in the last week of March, exactly one year ago, during the 2016 bleaching event. That coral there on the bottom left is already dead. And you can see other dead corals uh, in this movie clip. So. In the last year, we've been studying this event, a new, a new event, 
uh, we've done several uh, things. So uh, last March and into the first week in April, I undertook an aerial survey of the reef, which I'll talk to you in a moment about. Um, at the same time, we had lots of divers uh, underwater, taking that movie clip and measuring what the corals were doing uh, underwater. And I'll show you some of that um, data in, in a minute. So the aerial surveys that I uh, undertook uh, were done in this helicopter. It looks like something you'd get out of a Christmas cracker. Um, I'm sure a 15-minute jaunt in a helicopter with the doors taken off um, is a joyride, but I can assure you that 30 hours in one of them is quite grueling. So we spent three days in this chopper and another uh, seven days, I think it was, in a fixed airplane surveying uh, the entire Great Barrier Reef and for the last two weeks I've actually been doing it again because now we have uh, a new bleaching event. So this is a map of where we went in 2016. Uh, myself, uh, my research assistant and the pilot. Now looking at those red tracks you might think that the pilot had one gin and tonic too many. Um, but the purpose of these flights was to crisscross the length and breadth of the Great Barrier Reef fly low and slowly over as many reefs as we could and score the severity of bleaching on those reefs. Um, that exercise has been done twice before, in 1998 and in 2002, the two uh, earlier bleaching events that occurred at the scale of the Great Barrier. This was the third one, and 2017, tragically, is the, is the fourth one. So we've just um, published our results from this study uh, two weeks ago. It was the cover article in the March 16th issue of Nature, for those of you who read journal articles. So here's a short movie clip of what we could see from the air. So we timed our flights last year and again this year to coincide with a maximum amount of bleaching, which occurs very soon after the summer maximum temperature when enough heat has accumulated to turn many of the corals white. And you need to do the aerial surveys reasonably promptly because soon after peak bleaching the corals start to die. And I'll talk about the mortality of these bleached corals uh, later on in, in a moment. So I'll just let you watch that for a minute. That shadow is the chopper passing uh, over, over the reef. So basically for three days in the northern part of the Great Barrier Reef, that's what we were looking at. Severely bleached reefs, several hundred of them stretching for 700 kilometers north from about Port Douglas all the way up to Australia's maritime border with the um, with PNG. This is a map that we produced. Uh, this is a simplified version of it that um, we published in the conversation. The more technical one uh, was published in, uh, in Nature two weeks ago. So what it shows uh, fairly clearly is that there's a north-south gradient in the extent of the bleaching last year. The north was very severely bleached, much more severely than uh, either 98 or 2002. The middle section of the reef was bleached to a lesser extent, but I wouldn't call that mild or even moderate bleaching. The central section of the Great Barrier Reef last year bleached more severely than in either 1998 or 2002, and the bottom third of the reef uh, escaped bleaching. So this is the third map of bleaching that we have so far. 
in the three uh, events in 98, 2002, and 2016, the footprint of each of those events is very different. So this one was very much a northern affair. The geography of the two other bleaching events was, was different. And the reason for that is that bleaching relates very tightly to the pattern of where the hot water is in each event. So last year, the water temperatures were extremely hot in the north. They were two to three degrees centigrade above the normal summer maximum temperature. And they stayed that way for many weeks. The temperature in the middle was, was also hot, but not as hot. And the third was basically rescued by a cyclone. So you may recall that last February, February 20th, a cyclone passed over Fiji, Cyclone Winston. It was a Category 5 cyclone that killed many Fijians. And it came to Queensland as a, uh, as, as a storm rather than a cyclone. And it hovered over the bottom third of the reef for several weeks. It drew the temperature down by about three degrees. So if you think about that, the bottom half of the Great Barrier Reef was rescued last year by a chance weather event. Without that weather event, the warm temperatures would have spread throughout the entire Great Barrier Reef and we would have had severe bleaching everywhere. This year we have a new event, the fourth, and the pattern this year is different. I don't have a map yet to show it to you, but the main result we have already found is that the central Great Barrier Reef in 2017 is the new north. It's red. So the northern two-thirds of the Great Barrier Reef between 2016 and now again in 2017 has now severely bleached. The bottom third didn't get hot enough this year again, and so it has thankfully escaped bleaching for a second time. You might wonder how accurate are these aerial scores. So I mentioned we did a lot of work uh, underwater, and one of our objectives underwater was to test the accuracy of the bleaching event. So here's um, what it looked like underwater. We spent um, many, many uh, hours underwater. Roughly 100 people were underwater for a month in um, March, April, and again in October, November. We went back six months after the peak bleaching basically to see how many calls were left, how many had died. So this is a reef with more than 90% mortality of its calls in the northern section of the Great Barrier. So you can see there are lots of table calls, but also staghorn calls, bushy calls, and even some mound calls that are normally quite tough and resistant uh, to bleaching that succumbed following the peak of the bleaching six months earlier. So we now have a map of where the calls died in 2016, and this is what it looks like. So the red region there, the median mortality for the reefs in that red region was 67% loss of corals. That means half of the reefs in that red region lost more than 67% of their corals. So many of those reefs have losses of 80 or 90 or more percent of their corals. The other half are obviously less than 60%. The mortality was a bit less further offshore in the far north, but still a median of 26, a quarter of the corals on average. The central had 6% mortality on average, and no calls died from bleaching in the south. 
I can't tell you yet what the loss of corals in 2017 will be in the central region, which is now bleached as badly as the northern region was last year, but it's likely to be in the 50 to 65% range as it was in the north. So in combination, the 2016 and now the 2017 event have been incredibly damaging to the Great Barrier Reef. So before you all go and slit your wrists, um, uh, this is my last slide. And the point I'd like to make here is that we still have a very narrow and rapidly narrowing um, window of opportunity to save the Great Barrier Reef. The mechanism that I believe will deliver that is the COP21 process. So we've seen now four bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef with less than one degree of global average warming. It's absolutely essential that we don't go above the two degree COP21 target or we won't have coral reefs as we know them in the future. Under a COP21 emission trajectory, the atmospheric CO2 should peak um, somewhere between 450 and 500 ppm, which would mean that the tropical ocean water temperatures would increase by about another half a degree centigrade above the 0.8 degree centigrade warming that's already occurred in the tropical ocean since the pre-industrial time. I think that's doable. The consequences will not be comfortable for coral reefs, but I think we'll still have corals. The mix of species will be different. It is already different now following the 2016 and 2017 bleaching event that I've just described. But rather than go away and throw your arms up in despair, I hope my talk will motivate you, maybe even make you angry, and put some political pressure out there to transition as soon as we can away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. Thank you. David, are you going to speak from your seat, David? Or are you uh, going to yeah, uh, sure. Um, so I was expecting welcome. you to come this way towards the, uh, in the, going from the most learned to the least. <laughs> um, that's fine. Um, look, the, the first thing I want to do really is to acknowledge um, what we've just heard and the absolutely extraordinary work by Professor Terry Hughes. Um, times of great crisis need great truth-tellers. And um, what Terry has not described is some of the uh, attacks and criticism that he has worn for doing this absolutely extraordinary job of truth-telling. Um, all I can feel is enormous gratitude um, for the work that Terry and his team have done. And I think all of us, all Australians, citizens of the world, really should feel that, that gratitude. Um, so thanks, Terry. Um, so there's a line from uh, Utah Phillips, which is, um, the earth is not dying, it's being killed, and those who are killing it have names and addresses. <laughs> now, if we substitute the earth 
for the reef, and let's not say dying, because that does sound like it has a certain destination, let's say in trouble, or let's say ill, or let's say in crisis. But the insight is absolutely the same. This is not a natural process. This is not a neutral process. This is a process that has people on the end of it who are pulling the levers. There is a complex of business that is making money from what is happening to our Great Barrier Reef. Now that complex includes, first and foremost, the fossil fuel industry and at the front of the fossil fuel industry we have the coal industry and yes, um, stopping the Carmichael project um, with the Adani proponent is absolutely essential and then the rest of the coal industry sits behind that. We now know enough about the implications of climate change uh, of global warming that we can say that this is what fossil fuel companies are investing in. They are investing in the bleaching of our Great Barrier Reef as well as all the other consequences of climate change. But let's look beyond, um, let's look beyond the fossil fuel companies. What about the banks that loan money to fossil fuel companies? These are financial institutions that are now investing in the destruction of the Great Barrier Reef. Combank, the Commonwealth Bank, um, you'll see some uh, uh, slogan, uh, some logos up the back that have been brand jammed from the Commonwealth Bank. The Commonwealth Bank is the most significant, struct uh, structurally significant private investor in fossil fuel projects in Australia. But all of the banks are still complicit in loaning money. The banks are investing in the destruction of the Great Barrier Reef. What about the peak bodies? What about the Business Council of Australia? Well, here is a peak body that is happy to issue press releases on virtually the opening of a lunchbox. But have they said anything at all about the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef? No, they have not. And yet they list the uh, stalling, or as they describe it, the stalling of the Adani project as a, a, a sign that our approval system is not working as it should. Again, this is a lobby group that is invested in the destruction of the Great Barrier Reef. What about the lawyers who write the contracts? What about the Courier Mail and the other papers and who have absolutely failed to cover this extraordinary uh, event that is unfolding on our Great Barrier Reef? Um, we should acknowledge there, though, also the good, the remarkable work done by The Guardian, the remarkable work done by some individual reporters, Peter Hannum, uh, Michael Slezak, Peter Hannum at the, the Sydney Morning Herald, Michael Slezak at The Guardian, there are a few others. But again, going back to those who are making the money out of what is going on. But to acknowledge to acknowledge that people have wrought this crisis is also to acknowledge that people can unmake this crisis. It is to acknowledge that the power to end this resides in the people, resides in the ability of people like those who are here this evening 
to organise, to say we have heard the truth-telling by Terry Hughes that we will not stand back and allow vested interests to make money by investing in the destruction of our Great Barrier Reef, that we will use our power as thinkers, as writers, as citizens, as members of families, as members of neighbourhoods, as members of communities, and we will organise to end this because actually we say that our Great Barrier Reef is not something that we are prepared to see erode and deteriorate and descend into nothing but a remnant of what it once was, and that we will collectively sign up for the mission that it will take to deliver that roadmap to recovery that means that our Great Barrier Reef, in the fullness of time, returns to a state of health. If we wish to honour the truth that we have heard this evening, that is what we must do. Thanks. In 1965, uh, a painter called John Bust, a dropout painter, a bit of a bohemian, read in the newspaper that a reef just near where he lived at Bingle Bay um, was going to be mined for fertiliser and that um, he just noticed that this was, uh, this was in the newspaper. And that was the beginning of a campaign um, engineered really by three people more than anything, Judith Wright, poet, John Bust, dropout painter, and a guy called um, Len Webb, who was a forester. The three of them were friends. They got together. That, the, the attempt to mine Ellison Reef in 1965 for fertiliser was the beginning of this campaign that went for 10 years and defeated the government of Joe Bjorki-Peterson who had zoned the reef, 80% of the reef, 80% of the reef is about 80% of, uh, shall we say, um, Japan. That size had been zoned for oil, gas and fertiliser and cement use the Great Barrier Reef. And they saved the reef, those three people, in a way, just ordinary citizens, by mobilising people like you all over the country to do something about it. Now, it seems to me that this Ellison Reef moment has been presented to us again by Terry Hughes's amazing work. You'll be told or you read in newspapers that the reef's problems are, uh, the government says, we're, we're doing a lot about the reef, we're, we're, we've invested in better water quality, which is a good thing, certainly not um, denying that it's a good thing, uh, they're investing in this and that. But what they are not investing in is the thing that's killing the reef, because they don't want to admit that it's climate change. So they go straight to the periphery of the matter and that's where they stay. And that's where the action, the only action by our government is happening. And it is doing nothing about the bleaching. 
And in fact, you know, a great deal of energy is going into denying that there's such a thing. And you can't deny it now. Terry has given us our Ellison Reef moment, and he has told us in the calm, gentle, serious way that he has said to you that the reef can be saved. We can save the reef, but we've just got a very short time to do it. And we must, we absolutely must act. Every one of us, whether you're a citizen who's never even been to the reef, uh, Judith Wright had only been to the reef once and she campaigned herself into the ground. During that time she lost her hearing altogether. John Buist campaigned until literally he died. He had cancer right through the campaign. These three people drove themselves and helped save the reef once. So we're asking you to, to take advantage of the knowledge that has just been given to you by, by Terry Hughes, the chilling knowledge of all that work that he's done, and go out there and do something about it. Thank you very much. Well, uh, that's, those were two very powerful statements. Um, so I would like to thank Terry very much for all the hard work and the persistence, you know, the headlines in the newspaper. This is just a conspiracy of scientists to get more, reach, more research money. I mean, it was all smoke and mirrors. We're, we're going to save the reef. We're going to do, have the water quality monitoring program. They want to, they went to UNESCO. Uh, was it last week or the week before? Yep, we're going to get tick the box, tick the box. We're going to worry about rezoning the reef. We're going to have water quality. But it's quite clear those issues, whereas they make the government look good to the people who don't really understand and certainly to those people who don't appreciate that climate change is global. Yes, you can work on local issues. And what did Terry say today? Uh, the uh, ocean warming, the warming of the reef is like... 10 cyclones holding hands and going to the reef together. So it's destructive along the entire length of the reef. Yes, you can maybe affect the, the Burdekin River and its outflow, but that's not going to affect something warming that's gone off in the Coral Sea miles from coastal pollution. So we have a big pollution and it's called global warming. And I think, uh, it, somehow I think if it didn't bleach again this year, they might have just gone away. I really think it might have just gone a bit and they've swept it under the carpet again. But this year it's happened again and they can't blame El Nino. It's happened again the next year. So I think now the government, even the Australian had an article on it yesterday. They can't deny that this is happening. Right? So, and I think we cannot be fooled by the, the, they kind of want to blind us with their science. They've said, you know, if we do this, reduce this nutrient load, and at the end, they're not, that's not effective at all. I don't even think they're doing a good job of that. But anyway, I think the most important uh, message across is that they can't get away with hiding behind water quality and overfishing and zoning and other issues. The, the, the elephant in the room is that the, our dependence on fossil fuels. We have to uh, uh, wean ourselves off that, like, now. And as Terry says, we've got a small window of opportunity and the one thing I would like to think that Australia could be a leader in this. We have actually been an embarrassment internationally. 
an absolute embarrassment. And I think with a grassroots campaign to tell, kick our, our uh, politicians in the you-know-where to actually get, the, get their campaigns going and uh, get their act together, because this is the real issue for Australia, is climate change. In all, look at what happened in South Australia. It's not just the Great Barrier Reef we're talking about. We're talking about the very survival of humanity. And if the Great Barrier Reef can be the catalyst to get Australia going in that direction for the entire nation, that will be a terrific accomplishment. So we do need to work on those campaigns, as you suggest. Yes. Thanks. Thanks very much, Terry, David, Ian, and Maria, um, for sort of a blend of scientific expertise and passionate advocacy and calls to activism. Um, I just want to explain how we're um, going to play out the next sort of 45 minutes. I'm going to sort of exercise my prerogative as MC and ask a few opening questions of, of Terry and the panel. Uh, and perhaps audience members might take that time to uh, devise some well-crafted, succinct, which is a polite <laughs> way of saying brief, uh, to-the-point questions for the panel, um, not an opportunity for a, a long ramble um, with a microphone, but think of something that you'd be really interested to hear the collective thinking of the panel on, and we'll have a, um, a, a decent slate of time for some audience uh, Q&A. Um, after which I just want to say that um, you will be invited as an audience to pop upstairs to uh, level five, the refectory um, in this building, um, and join uh, Maria um, and some of her team uh, who have been working on a 3D coral reef project. Um, there is also glasses of wine available, not that I think Maria and her team would need any further inducement, but <laughs> if you were wondering what would you need to get up to the fifth floor, I suggest to you that there would also be a Friday night um, beverage up there. So, uh, Terry, perhaps I can ask you um, first a question. Um, you, you've given us a very uh, compelling account of a situation that all of the panellists have reinforced the kind of urgency and time sensitivity of. At the, at the present rate of bleaching, and even understanding that this can't be kind of anticipated with any kind of incredible level of accuracy, what, what kind of time frame would you be saying we have to save what remains of the Great Barrier Reef? Um, that, that research question you've just asked is, uh, is actively being addressed by a number of research groups um, around the world. So various uh, climate modelers have come up with um, a year, uh, somewhere between 2030 and 2050, where we can expect to see annual bleaching of corals, in other words, throughout ENSO cycles, which I'll explain in a second, um, under a business as usual emissions. Now that's an important qualification. Um, I think we've got an opportunity to not let that happen by getting off a business as usual emission trajectory. And that's already happening. The last three years have been flattening in terms of global um, CO2 equivalent emissions. And if we follow a COP21 trajectory, it will peak and then rapidly decrease, which will save us from um, really dangerous levels of global warming. The concept of annual bleaching, um, 
I think is a little bit misleading because um, you don't have to have bleaching every year for it to be incredibly dangerous for coral reefs. So um, typically when a coral reef is badly damaged, uh, and we've been studying that for a long, long time because they can be damaged by cyclones or crown of thorns outbreaks, it takes about a decade for the, a badly damaged reef to recover its corals. Um, let me qualify that. It takes 10 years for the fastest growing corals to regain their former abundance. For slower growing corals, it's much longer than that. And for that reason, I believe that the northern Great Barrier Reef, and probably now the central Great Barrier Reef as well, has changed forever. The species composition will not be the same in your lifetime as it was one year ago. And that's because when we get extreme bleaching, like we've just documented, it's not just the, the uh, fastest growing corals which are affected, it's also the long-lived ones. So in the north last year, we saw 50 and 100-year-old corals severely bleached and dying. And it is now impossible for those species to recover because the return time between these bleaching events is faster than the uh, lifetime of those individuals. It takes 50 years to regrow another 50-year-old individual. So the mix of species on the Great Barrier Reef is already changing. It's changing very rapidly. So I think we'll still have a Great Barrier Reef under a two degree, maybe two and a half degree centigrade scenario if COP21 is close to being successful. But above that, it will be an increasingly degraded system. So I guess I'm cautiously optimistic, but realistic also that the Barrier Reef of your childhood is, is gone for several centuries until temperatures rise, peak, and then fall. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. So the sooner we make that peak happen and the decline in CO2 emissions and temperatures, and I'm talking two centuries, the better. I'm starting to sort of get on to something I'm also interested to ask you. From, from a scientific perspective, what do you think is the most important thing we can do to save the reef? Well, deal with climate change. At the moment, it's the elephant in the room. So Australia deals very well with fishing pressure on the Great Barrier. We have reef zones and they work. We're not dealing very well with water quality, which is the second issue. So we have a plan called the 2050 Reef Sustainability Plan, which is a water quality plan. It's underfunded and it's not very effective so far but it, it potentially could be effective if we didn't buy one extra submarine, for instance, <laughs> um, or give a billion dollar loan to a billionaire. That would fix water quality. Uh, but the elephant in the room, the thing the government's not addressing, is climate change. And obviously building the world's largest coal mine is a, is a complete antithesis of dealing with, with emissions. Um, Ian gave an example in his comments of, the, of Allison Reef and the interventionist actions of ordinary citizens to turn the situation around. And, and the rest of the panel have also sort of made kind of comment of this order. Can I can I ask you know, Terry and the panelists? You know, many people feel sort of dwarfed by the immensity of these messages. You know, I'm sure I'm not the only person in the room who feels a bit defeated by some of what you've shown us this evening. 
and there's a tendency or at least a risk that people become fatalistic and think, you know, what can I do in relation to this? Or more, more fatalistically, I can do nothing. How can we empower people to act on the issue of saving the reef? Are there sort of small-scale actions that can, you know, inspire people getting, getting them to do something? Is there something at a sort of an individual or a community level that's plausible for us to think about? Yeah, I, I suspect that's a question for David or someone else in the room. Who's responsible for hashtag vote for the reef? That's not one of ours. It's not one of yours. Okay. <laughs> you want to take that up? Yeah, sure. Ha happy to. Um, there are lots of things in the world where you can only control part of what is in front of you, where actually your destiny is out of your control, and that doesn't make us powerless. Um, an asteroid could hit the Earth tomorrow, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't stick your seatbelt in when you get into a car. Every one of us here, there's an abundance, there's a, there's a, there's a, a rich palette of things you can do. You can write to your politicians because, believe it or not, they hate getting letters and they are scared of them because they get so few of them. It's true. You can write a letter to your politician. You can write a letter to Ian Narev, who is the head of the Commonwealth Bank in Australia, which I say is the largest fossil fuel, uh, structural lender to fossil fuel, the new fossil fuel projects. Uh, there's a thing called the Northern Australia infrastructure facility and if you want to see a few minutes of me looking awkward on video you can look at my efforts to try and find their reception to deliver a petition or um, some advice to them about how not to lend a billion dollars um, to the uh, company that wants to build the Carmichael coal mine to which Terry referred. Well you can go online and you can make submissions to that infrastructure facility you can think of five people you might like to buy a sandwich or make a sandwich for and talk to them about what together you might do. You could write down a list of the, the ten most powerful people you know and say you're going to talk to each of those ten powerful people and ask them who their circle of influence is. Goodness me, you could, you could get involved in an organisation you could join an organisation that works all the time on these issues and of course I'd love you to come along with Greenpeace but Greenpeace happily is one of a whole uh, ecosystem of organisations that, that represent hundreds of thousands of dedicated Australians who care about this stuff. You can join the Australian Conservation Foundation. You can join our colleagues at Get Up. You can join our colleagues at the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Come and join us at Greenpeace. G get involved. And you'll find others who are, who are there and who care about these things. So please never think that there is nothing you can do because there are an abundance of things you can do that matter.